Oh, you fans, today's episode comes straight from the heart as I host my friend Denise Brody, the CMO of my own company, Appian. Denise has been such an inspiration for me. She has a radiating positive energy and passion for her work, relationships, and lifestyle that I very, very much admire. She has been CMO of Appian since 2020, where I've witnessed her transform many parts of our business, including a successful end-to-end rebrand across our entire company. I have also witnessed her dance on stage at her last sales kickoff, which was equally, if not more, impressive. Before Appian, she was at SAP for 15 years, including as COO of some of their core lines of business. But before all her career success, she has an incredible story, starting with her and her mother escaping the Vietnam War in the 70s. They hopped on a boat that drifted at sea for weeks, landing up in Malaysia, and then escaping as refugees to Virginia in the U.S. She then worked hard to become the first member of her family to attend college, moved to Silicon Valley to pursue her startup dream, became a C-suite executive, and the rest is history. On this pod, we talk about her story as a refugee living the American dream, having authenticity as a leader, and an area where perhaps her and I get most excited to chat about, wellness. So without further ado, Denise Brody. have some fun. Um, Denise, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show with me today. I leave all of our conversations incredibly inspired um, and excited. And so I figured a podcast episode would be a great way to share that excitement and inspiration that I've had from our previous conversations with uh, with an audience. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited to be talking with you today about all kinds of topics that we've talked about before. Um, for our audience who doesn't know you, you are currently CMO at Appium, uh, where you joined the company in 2020. And beforehand, you've had quite a successful and extensive career as well. You've been um, COO at SAP. You straddled the COO and CMO role at Workforce Software. Um, you came, this is all coming after um, growing up in Vietnam and fleeing after the Vietnamese War. So I'm very excited to have you with today, have you with me today. And we're going to dive into some very exciting topics. So thank you for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me, Noah. And by the way, this is the first time I'm getting seen in some nerdy headphones. <laughs> you look great in the headphones. They suit you well. I think you should wear them in more interviews. <laughs> yes. Smile to the camera. Um, so I wanted to start off today by talking about a topic that I know you're particularly passionate about, and you've made it seem almost like it's your mission in a way, which is redefining the ordinary. So I wanted to start off, I think that would be a good starting point for us. What is what does redefining the ordinary mean to you? I look at it as many of the barriers that we have in our lives are created in our minds, right? So the, the question is, can we get out of our own head as part of this? And I always look at something so simple, like to have impact on one person's life in your lifetime is all that's needed. And I think that many times people think that you literally have to cure, you know, world hunger or cancer to have an impact. So many ways to have an impact and just define um, really to challenge the status quo and to do things differently and to really think about the bigger cause in life besides yourself. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So that connects to a lot of 
what I've really enjoyed a lot about our conversations in the past, which is reflecting on your career and the wisdom and the insight that you've gathered. And you've shared a lot of it with me in the past. And I've always, again, left our conversations feeling very excited. So one of the, I, I wrote some down here that I wanted to talk about a little bit with you. Um, the first one is close to home for me. And this is actually something that I've talked to a previous podcast mm. guest about, which is leading with your strength, right? Knowing what your strengths are and actually leaning into them. So how has that played a role throughout your career? Yeah, I look at, Definitely. Playing to your strengths is so important, right? Um, there is a couple things that I'm really good at. I am highly disciplined and I'm very routine oriented. So when I think about playing into my strengths, I turn every focus into habits and routines. And when I look at that combination, uh, I love the saying, it's just like uh, discipline equals freedom. And it sounds so boring, but it really works, right? So I look at something so simple as, you know, just starting the morning routine. Every morning, I'm usually up 4.30 to 5. I may respond to emails for the first half an hour. I read for another half an hour. Then I'm working out. And it depends on what time I get up. I set my alarm every day for 7, but I usually get up between 4.30 and 5. Um, and I think just having that discipline becomes really important because it creates consistency in everything that you do. I always look at everything you do. If you're only able to do it one time, people will identify that as luck. If mm. you're able to do it multiple times, it's consistency and it is created with good discipline and habits as part of it. Mm -hmm. I'm in complete agreement. I think that people, I think the consistency and execution is what success is predicated on. I think people rely on on the idea of goals or just ideas too much, right? The novelty, yes. right? People like the recycling of new, of being in a novel state of chasing something new. But I think in reality, you need to create platforms or systems or rules in order to ensure that consistency. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to start the podcast by saying that if you're not into habits and routine, read James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. It will give you a great baseline for systems, right? Even something so simple, when I sit at the dining room table in my New York apartment, I have I, by the way, everybody in our family has assigned seats in our in our dining room table, uh -oh. and it sounds so boring, <laughs> right? But when I sit in that one position, the kids know that I'm literally working. If I'm sitting on my moon pod in the living room, I am actually reading for pleasure. And so, because I'm such, I'm so habitual, they know that when they see me sitting at the dining room table with a bunch of stacks of paper or consuming something. I'm probably prepping for something, doing something for work, and they're less likely to bother me than if I'm sitting in the living room, right? So again, these simple habits. And I think that in all the years that our family has sat together at dinner or even when we have guests over, we're always in the same formation, which is, you know, again, building that discipline. And I think discipline just becomes so important in order. It's not even to, as you said, it's not to achieve goals, right? Because you could always have goals or KPIs. But the key is to do the routine so that it becomes part of the natural habit. So if I'm giving a presentation, I typically will practice it five, ten times, depending on the degree. I will make sure all the pieces are in place. But that comes with good routine. I don't see it as it's a must. It's literally just something that starts as part of the process. Mm -hmm. And 
Excuse me. I knew uh, I knew going into this conversation that I had sort of a list of things I wanted to talk about, but we would definitely divert. And I'm happy we are. Um, and so because a lot of the reason is because systems, habits, routines is something I think about a lot also. Yes. And discipline can be a difficult state of mind to constantly be in, right? And I, I, I want to ask you about how you ensure you leave room for spontaneity and fun and flexibility in a lifestyle that is highly disciplined. Yeah, so I keep the discipline towards the, I only do it Monday through Friday. Um, and on the weekends, <laughs> my, my schedule is completely loose with the family. So there's a lot of freedom. There is a lot of uh, opportunity to have fun, but even the work week, right? If you ask anyone on the marketing team, when I'm in the office, yes, my calendar is disciplined in the aspect of blocking things off. But many times I'll just walk over to somebody's area and I'm like, oh, let's go for a walk because, you know, something will get canceled or something changes as part of it. And of course, like anything we do, when people think of discipline, they think of somebody who's boring and doesn't have a lot of fun. Trust me, you got to laugh a lot in between and have a lot of fun and just think about bringing more levity into work as part mm -hmm. of this. Yeah, and I can definitely attest to the fact that you've been successful in having fun in the midst of a disciplinary lifestyle. I feel um, I feel like I laugh a lot during our conversations, which is really important, right? And that sort of touches on another topic I wanted to talk to you about um, in regard to career reflections, which is authenticity and bringing your authentic self to work. I think that that can be difficult for a lot of people who feel that they need to put on a little bit of a shell in a professional yeah. environment in order to better fit in. They think that um, that will be more conducive to their success if they behave the way in which they're expected to. But I think authenticity is arguably a better pathway to success. And I want to ask you about how you ensure that you're doing that in your working life. Yeah, actually, this was really hard in my 20s, and I would even say to mid-30s, and maybe it's because I had kids later in life, and the autistic just really came a little bit later. I think when you're in your 20s, I really suffered with uh, being a people pleaser, right? And you're constantly having to have a certain image, one to please people, whether you know it's your boss, your friends, whoever. Um, and I really would say that I think that uh, bringing your authentic self to everything that you do is so critical. Like you will laugh if you see me on the dance floor. Like I'll sometimes be walking with my kids and <laughs> there will be a funny moment and I'm doing the running man and the kids are so embarrassed. And I think that like you just have to bring your whole self and be completely okay with it. I'm a complete like terrible dancer i'm a i'm okay with that uh, but if you don't make fun of yourself and be authentic and bring yourself right to whatever you do it's going to be a really lonely process mm -hmm. i think that that's the only way that uh, you become an authentic leader get people to really know you like most likely if we sit around for drinks, I will never talk to you about sports. I'm not a sports fanatic, right? It, unless you consider shopping a sport, like I'm very open to who I am, where my strengths are, but we can definitely have a good conversation on books or hiking or traveling or just like fun things. I read a lot of like stuff where, you know, it's uh, stats and things like that, that uh, I'm curious about in the world. Um, but like, I wouldn't talk to you about sports. It's just not who I am. And mm -hmm. we should never try to 
pretend to be who we're not, and really think about bringing that authenticity to work. Um, so I will tell you something. I think people are very surprised at when I, because I grew up very poor and on welfare. When I went to college, I was in complete denial. And by the way, I didn't even tell people at work that I was a refugee kid until 2015. 2015, wow. and so for me, that brought. Shame, right? And I was so working so hard to acclimate as an adult that I was like, I want to leave it in the past. And it was only when somebody was um, asking about a feature for Forbes at SAP and asked me about my story, and I told them my story. And I just remember, even my boss at that time was like, "What? You never told me this," because I felt so much shame in talking about it. Mm -hmm. um, but as I got older and I really leaned into, you know, myself and who I am, I just felt like it was so important to tell the story. If it inspired one person or shifted one person's mindset that you could grow up poor and have the opportunities and the doors could open, it would have a different. An outcome, and it really, but it took me a long time. It wasn't something that happened overnight. Mm -hmm. I think that's the ultimate testament to the fact that you really do believe in bringing your authentic self to work. I think that you know, there's there's one thing. I, I think that this also connects to something we've spoken about, which is on in, in regards to vulnerability, right, yes. and being vulnerable in the workplace, and being able to show that you're not, you know, a, a perfect put together person at all times and that everyone has a story and a history. And I think that if you fail to be vulnerable, fail to bring your, bring your authentic self to work, yeah. you limit your ability to connect with the people around you. Yeah. And perhaps that that was a an experience you were having at the time as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's no shame whether you're male, female, to cry at work, to you know, hug a colleague if they need you, vice versa. There, there's no shame in it. I think we're so guarded around our emotions and if you try to keep a separate person in your personal life and bring a separate person at work it's going to be double the work you should just be yourself mm -hmm. so it doesn't matter i think that and sometimes like i'll tell people like i'm asking them a personal question and it, you know if it's too much i'm have you know i always remind them you don't have to answer it i'm just nosy i just bring <laughs> myself i'm like i'll tell them right beforehand yeah and i think we have to be okay with that as you know human beings is just really lean in and mm -hmm. be yourself no you know the the longer don't forget you'll work for 40 years if you're trying to be somebody else it's going to be a very long 40 year yeah. you know uh, marathon exactly right there's something to be said for the external benefits yeah. of being able to connect better but also the internal benefits of just freeing up mental energy, yes. right? Being yourself is a lot easier and it's going to shorten those 40 years or maybe not necessarily shorten them, but make them a lot more exciting. <laughs> and more and fun. And more, more yeah, fun. and more meaningful. More fun. High more five. fun. More fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one, one piece of advice that um, you gave me in a discussion that we had was about picking the right companies and the importance of it. And... I almost just wanted you to kind of repeat the way in which you shared that with me, not necessarily specifically, but just your philosophy on it. And maybe we could talk a little bit about um, how you how you picked Appian yeah. um, and how you ended up here. Yeah, I always tell people when you think about you know careers and just meaningful work. Again, you don't have to cure you know world hunger or cancer to have a meaningful 
life. And with that is, you know, every component is work, right? And what you have to really look at is, it's just for me, it's very simple. You got to figure out what you're good at. And then the second piece is you got to figure out what you love. So what you're good at and what you love. And it that formula sounds so easy, but that probably took me about, you know, 15 years, right? So I started and, you know, I spent um, 15 years at SAP, very large company, 10 years and three smaller companies. One got acquired to S- into SAP. So I'm not sure if you even count that. And then here at Appian, and what I realized is I was in the spectrum of everything from startup to large scale and then to private equity turnaround, which was more midsize. Mm-hmm. And at every phase for the 24 years, I was sitting there thinking, okay, startup is not really for me. By the way, my husband is a serial startup guy. He's like done, you know, six, seven startups, sold one of them. Like he loves it. He hates big companies. And what I realized is like startup is hard, right? I don't want to be 20 people in the garage. Um, but I also don't love this gigantic, huge company. I was at SAP for 15 years. And during that time, I accumulated a lot of experiences and skills, but it was tough to have an overall impact um, in, the o- in the overall you know, mm-hmm. large company setting. Um, so in private equity, the, it, it was great that it was mid-size, but there's not as much room for growth. And so the reason why I chose Appian is it's what I call a scale-up. Mm-hmm. So we're not a startup, you know, we're not a mature company like an SAP and Oracle, but in a scale-up, you have a lot of room for growth. So if you're the type of co- person like me that doesn't enjoy doing the same thing, forget every day, what about every hour or so? Being able to build teams, being able to drive innovation, being able to think about as a marketer, how do I drive growth? How do I really create an impact? Not just in what we're doing as a company, but things that could shift the entire market as part of it, right? So these things are things that are really important to think about because some people, if you're one of the folks that you really want that domain expertise and you want to be, let's say, a solution engineer, solution consultant your entire life and you love to do demos and that's all you want to do and you want to do it for one product, you're probably better off at a larger company. But if you're somebody that's looking to build expertise across so that one day you can be in the C-suite, in order to be in the C-suite, you have to have a lot of experiences, right, as part of this. So even when I think about the CMO job, you need to probably have product marketing background, some type of strategy background, operations. You know, you may have worked in digital as part of it, field marketing, partner marketing. Like, you got to collect these experiences as you go. And then that's why thinking about not only the size, but the opportunity is so important. And You know, the other thing is when you're in a scale up, it's what I call organized chaos. So many times you will probably have more emergencies than let's say a standard day. And you also have to be okay with that. And not everybody is okay in working in that organized chaos. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So so what you love, what you're good at, and Appian was the intersection of those two things for you. After an extensive career bouncing around, flip-flopping between different types of companies. Yeah, that took 24 years. 24 years, <laughs> okay, so everyone listening right now, not gonna come right away. It's not, <laughs> and you know, the other, you and I talked about this, which is the other thing that's important is, in your first 10 to 15 years, 
accumulate a variety of skills and work for great bosses because mm -hmm. the people that you work for at some point there were many times at SAP I didn't necessarily pick the opportunity because I needed that specific skill I just followed the boss because the boss was amazing would sponsor different varieties of you know experiences opportunities and I think sometimes we undervalue loyalty Right. Mm -hmm. If you have a good boss who gives you great opportunities and give you an opportunity for growth and they go to another part of the organization or even a separate company, look at the opportunity. I think sometimes we're looking at the role. And I think that as you mature a little bit, you can really think about what qualities and, you know, the boss that you like. And I always tell people, it's like, I don't even want you to think of me as a boss. Think of me as your coach or as your mentor, because my job is to open doors for you, give you different opportunities, and help you develop in your career. Mm -hmm. And this is really in contrast to, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of the ways in which the newer generation thinks about career, in which they're much more willing to jump around different companies, yes. right, to portfolioize their career, versus stay at one company for longer, and as you're saying, value loyalty as much as it should be rather than undervalue it as it's become sort of the case now. Yeah, I would challenge everyone, look at your resume and see if you work somewhere for five years, right? The first year is always easy. Six months, you're ramping up. First year, you're probably at a point where you're doing well in your role. But that second, third, and sometimes even to the fifth year is when you're maturing. Mm -hmm. And when you think about running teams, it's harder to keep that team in your fifth year. It's harder to innovate in that fifth year. And so the the longevity gives you an opportunity to really think about, wow, am I good because the engine is moving? Or am I good because I'm able to innovate and build teams and help people develop? It takes a while to create trust. We don't create trust by sitting one time together or working on one project. It's all duration. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's something to be said for going deep. Yeah. Right. And I think that you're, you're totally right. You know, that first year, I think that many people experiencing, especially in, in the virtual world, the ramp up time takes a little bit longer, yes. you know, to familiarize yourself with the inner workings of a company, your team, the processes. And so, you know, giving yourself enough time to ensure that you're capitalizing on the opportunity in front of you rather than walking away from it when there's still potential for growth. Yeah. I think that it's a tough balance to strike, but it's one that we all need to have sort of a compass for. Yeah. Um, especially with in the great resignation right now and, and yes. what's happening. We'll see what's happening in the, in the next couple of years, though, with the markets changing right now. Lots yeah. of exciting stuff. It's May 2022 that we're recording this right now. So listeners in the future, beware. Yeah, <laughs> and I think, you know, my husband always says this to me because I'm a little bit um, always like, oh, what if we were doing this? What are we doing that? We'll be on a vacation and I'm thinking about the next vacation. He's like, don't have the jacuzzi effect. Everything mm. looks amazing. You know, it's like having a brand new jacuzzi. You're like, you're going to go in and use it every single day. And then you end up not using it, but like once every six months or a year kind of thing. Right. So really be intentional and think through like the impact of every role that you have and just the people around it. You know, we, we tend to jump for jobs, say, you know, whether it be a title or salary, don't let that motivate you. I always say this is it's such a long career that if you execute well and you do well in your role and you have the sponsorships for development, 
the pay will come, the titles will mm-hmm. come. That's all. That's all the outcome. What you need to think about is how do you create the opportunities for yourself mm-hmm. as part of it. And I think there's almost like an an intentional naivete to that. You know, it's it's an intentionally, um, what's the word? Inten- intentionally intense optimism, mm-hmm. right? Because you know what I love what you said before. Find what you love and what you're good at. A lot of people that I've heard say a similar thing add a third element to that, which is find what makes you money. Yes. Right. But you're saying the third will come, and if you include the third too much, if you have a bias too much for it, which can be, you know, an an unfortunate outcome in in the case of money, then it might take you in the wrong direction. Yeah. By the way, when I one of my roles at SAP, I remember launching new products and. You know, I excelled at the sales side of it, right? Business development, and did really well in the role. But I got up one day and I was like, I don't love it. So, it, had I put in, oh, okay, this is I'm good at it. It makes a lot of money. And by the way, if I didn't think about my own passion, I probably would have taken a different path. Mm. And I think that. Again, you have to be very thoughtful and what you think about when you think about your own happiness, right? So, mm-hmm. for me, I just really looked at you know come the journey to more um, senior oriented roles was always a great way to drive impact and have a platform to mentor and coach a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I always looked at that as the number one motivator and anything I'm looking at now. It's I really look at the sure money as an enabler, but it cannot be the only reason why you take a role as part of it, right? So, you know, we talked about the one of my favorite books, which is uh, by Morgan Housel, which is the psychology of money, and money is really about freedom, and that has actually resonated with me my entire life. Which is, how do you get that freedom to have the time to have? Other things that money becomes an enabler for, mm-hmm. it should not be the decision point. And if it's a decision point, I don't know if you'll be happy long term. Yes, I think money as an enabler of freedom is a great way to look at it because there are there are many elements to freedom. Yeah. Money being one of them. And if you chase money, but you don't chase the time freedom, then ultimately, you know, you are. Still half in bondage in a way, yes. right? So, so yeah, psychology of money as well as uh, atomic habits. We'll include those in the show notes. Want to give a quick shout out to uh, Jordan and Matt in the room right now for uh, being awesome videographer people. Hello, hello. Um, so, all these career reflections, right? This comes after you having grown up in Vietnam, right? During the Mm -hmm. Vietnam War. Vietnam War ended in 1975. The country was on lockdown for the following eight years. You escaped a refugee camp from 1979. If you you would be comfortable sharing that story with with the audience, um, I would love for everyone to hear it. Yeah, so in 79, my mother, my brother and I escaped and yeah, it sounds like a pretty straightforward journey, um, but my mother actually had two other children. and her first marriage. And I just so happened to be one of the middle two children, right? So she took my brother uh, and my myself. My 
uncle was also going to meet us and was supposed to take my younger brother, but he didn't make it. He went to reform prison for a period of time while we were in uh, Malaysia in refugee camp and he eventually met us, but was not allowed to take my brother on you know, the, the second leg. Otherwise, if he was caught, the entire our entire family and extended family would have all gone to prison and then my sister was never intended um, to go because she grew up with my grandmother and I actually didn't meet them until I was 21 so it was just the three of us and of course my uncles my two uncles um, but I didn't meet them until we could sponsor them into the U.S. Uh, when I was 21 and I always I grew up with very much a you know, thought of, wow, my whole life has been gratitude and, of course, a little bit luck and timing. I was thinking, like, when I was growing up, I was like, what would have happened if I wasn't one of the two middle kids? What happens if I, I was the youngest or the oldest? And I just sensed that gratitude all my life. So I was like, I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder to always prove to my mother that I could do well in life and have more, right? My mm -hmm. only goal was to figure out like, how do I give more and have more? Um, especially as, you know, she had an eighth grade education. I was the first one to go to college. Um, and because she was doing labor work all her life, I was trying to figure out like, how do I have more to help her when she's older mm -hmm. as part of this? And, you know, I think it's it's actually kind of funny. My mother still thinks I fix computers for a living yeah. because <laughs> she, you know, she doesn't understand that, hey, you could get paid to sit and talk and think about strategy and help companies grow. She Because she's always done labor work with her hands, um, she really thinks I fix computers for mm -hmm. a living. Like this weekend when I was down visiting my parents, my father, stepfather's printer stopped working. She's like, would you mind fixing the printer? And yeah. I'm like, I can barely <laughs> turn on my own computer, right? But yeah. I think that uh, the, the journey of also living in refugee camp, coming to the U.S., um, growing up on welfare, living, you know, a, a very uh, poor life, just just gave me more gratitude mm -hmm. later on in life. I was always the kid that was like, okay. Um, I was told, by the way, when I was in high school from one of the AP teachers for English not to even bother to take the test. Like, he's like, you're not even going to pass it. Your English is just terrible. Um, and I was like, I don't care. I'll just take it anyways. And I advanced, I placed out of it. So I was always the one I felt that people were always like, you couldn't do it. And I'm like, if you tell me that, I'm going to prove you double wrong, triple wrong. Um, and I always just had this little bit of a fuel to want to do more and to kind of beat everybody's expectations. And then as I got older, I realized I don't need to beat their expectations. I need to just compete with myself and beat my own expectations mm -hmm. and, you know, beat what's in my head as part of it. Mm -hmm. That is the race we should all strive yeah. to, to race, right? It's not to fight against or, or try to beat out other people, but try to beat our past yeah. selves, right? Life is a positive sum game and we don't have to beat others in order to win ourselves. In fact, if we help others win, we're more likely to win ourselves as well. So on the on the topic of appreciation, firstly, your story is very impactful, um, and to have had the you know the career that you have had after coming from that background is is quite is quite amazing. From the perspective of gratitude, I think that ultimately one of the uh, one of the keys or one of the ways to unlock happiness is to be more actively appreciative, right? Not just to be appreciative at the at the macro level. 
because we're all appreciative people in a way, right? But to be, to ensure that on a day-to-day basis, we are activating that appreciation, right? And so that can be, that's that's a difficult task and one that I'm most curious to hear about from you since perhaps in those early days, it was much easier to be appreciative of the freedom that you had yeah. growing up in, in not a refugee camp. But then maintaining that appreciation over time, it inevitably can wane. Its, its intensity can, can lower, right? Because yeah. it's, you know, we have recency bias. So how has that played a part in you know, your career, your life yeah. at this point. And by the way, everybody um, defines success differently, right? For some people, it could be literally um, career. For some people, it could be money. Well, however you define success. Um, what I really look at is the more successful you are, the harder, as you said, it is to stay happy. And I never look at the success as a singular piece. I'm very grateful for every single person that's been part of my life, whether it's, you know, the big sister I had in, you know, um, high school through the Big Sister Big Brother program to some of the initial teachers that believed in me to the sponsorships that I got you know, when I was going through everything from consulting to SAP to, you know, private equity, you name it, it was just, it's been so many people. And I think to stay grateful, you know, there's um, a great boss I had in my 20s. And he said to me, he said, you can be a hero one day, but down to zero the next. And he said, and everything that you do, don't have the hero syndrome. If you have the hero syndrome and you think that you were the reason that a certain accomplishment or something got done, you're gonna, next day or something bad happens, you're gonna be down to zero and there will be no one there, right, as part of it. So how do you cultivate this attitude and this mindset that like it takes an entire village to do everything, mm-hmm. right? So what I think about, you know, even when the kids were younger, without my husband, without the nanny, without the infrastructure, um, it wouldn't, the career would have not continued as part of it. So I just look at every moment as try to be as grateful as possible. I mean, Last night I was back in my hotel and it was 10 o'clock and I couldn't sleep. And I was watching a very bad episode yeah. of something terrible on Netflix. And she's like, I can't binging wait to do it. this podcast tomorrow. Yeah. I'm gonna be so tired. Yeah. No, but I was binging and I was like, I'm so grateful to have 30 minutes to do this. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes thinking about that gratitude and just saying thank you or like, have you ever done something for someone else and never told anybody? That is a good, that is a, one of the highest levels of, of giving that you can do is anonymous, right? And there's, you know, measures of charity in certain, you know, in various religions or in very, you know, just commentaries. and Yeah. And I think we can even be giving sometimes in the way that we talk to people, right? So, you know, don't ask somebody how they are unless you have time to actually hear how they are. Mm. I, it's just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think maybe it's that intersection also between gratitude and kindness. Like, really, treat people the way you want to be treated um, mm-hmm. as part of that. And I think that leads to being more grateful as part of it. Mm-hmm. A gratefulness tip I like, passing on compliments. Yes. When someone gives a friend a compliment, pass it on to them. It's yes. one of the easiest ways to make someone happy. 
it's like a double whammy because you give a compliment, your friend gives a compliment, you're improving relationships. Just a, just a small life hack I like to yeah. throw in every once in a while. Completely. I do this with strangers. Yeah. I'll be, you know, at the airport, I will see somebody's suitcase or like they're wearing a great outfit. I'm like, oh, I love your suitcase or I love your outfit. And they're like, oh my goodness, yeah. weirdo. But anyways. Like Jordan's hair clip. <laughs> <laughs> like Jordan's hair clip when I start out. Yeah. I was like, oh, Jordan, I like your hair clip. Yeah, yeah. Um, so gratefulness is one is one effect that, you know, your experience in your early life had, had on you. One thing I also wanted to ask about was, you know, the, the difference between Asian and American culture, right? Um, this is something we spoke about a little bit. Yeah. And growing up in the low-income projects in Virginia, you know, you had some experiences on that front that I thought might be, uh, might be worth sharing. Yeah, I would say Asians were very communal. Mm-hmm. I grew up with 30-something cousins. and That's a lot of cousins. I bet you didn't remember their names. Or did yeah, you? Yeah, of course. And, <laughs> you know, I look at, you know, our family. Everyone's so close. Like, I have a cousin who's an accountant and still helps my parents with taxes. And it's an in-law. It's not even a direct cousin. Um, but we grow up very communal. And anyone uh, that I meet, like, one of my mother's friend in D.C., they're heading up to New York in a couple of weeks and text me and was like, oh, can I just get a couple of restaurant recommendations? And for us, it's like, okay, of course I'm going to do that. Like, I wouldn't even think about it twice. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes here in the U.S., we tend to be so like the hero syndrome, right? The I. And there's no I. Like, everything we do should be like very inclusive and think about more the impact to community, think about impact to, you know, people around us. And I always tell people, like, if you come to work and you think about work as your extended family, would you treat people differently? Mm-hmm. Would Probably. You? I think that in this, in, oh, there's a commonality amongst a lot of the business leaders and executives that I've spoken to through this podcast where their coworkers have, in a lot of ways, in many cases, become their, their some of their closest friends. Yes or almost family, like you're saying. And I think that that's, you know, when you bring your, your, your professional life and your personal life together like that, not only do you create a second family in a way, but also I think that you can build something even greater than if your coworkers were more distant relationships. But that comes into, in contrast with advice you could also get from business leaders, which is to not get too close to your coworkers in order to ensure that it can remain it can remain professional and stern action can be taken when needed i disagree with that okay. i i really think you can be kind and also be stern right mm-hmm. manage expectations you know i've worked with teams here where we have ran some complicated um, you know, launch processes and deliverables, even in the, let's say, branding transition. I think in every branding transition I've had now, somebody's gone to the hospital, right? Because of stress. It's not like an easy thing to do. Um, and- Shout out to all the, uh, the, uh, what's it, the ICU beds that had to be occupied by it. <laughs> it that just gives you a little bit of a magnitude. Yeah, yeah. And I think that you can be kind and still be stern in the aspect of, you know, discussing expertise expectations but part of that is the the openness and the willingness to also get feedback mm-hmm. right because if you're kind but and somebody does something that you don't agree with or that you don't like or 
misses a deadline, if you're not stern with them and you don't give them feedback, like nothing, nothing's going to get adjusted. Mm -hmm. So I think that we sometimes think that being a kind person means that we're going to get walked all over or we don't get to our deadlines. I don't think that's the. I, at least I don't think of it that yeah. way. Yeah, well, it's, think it's worked for you, it. right? You're proof that it's worked. Yeah. Right. So, and and you're also proof for. Something that you've, this is something we've spoken about also, which is living proof for the American dream, right? This was, you know, coming from your background and then becoming a, you know, successful tech exec executive, now being a CMO at an awesome low code automation company. I'm not just saying that. Um, you know, the American dream is something, is something that I think has been at the forefront of a lot of what you've spoken about in the past. And I think that. One of the things that always struck me about what what you've shared is, you know, the the difference in equality of education, right? Your your mother growing up, you know, in the countryside in Vietnam, um, being a girl, she could only get up to an eighth grade education. Yeah. Your stepfather, on the other hand, in so, similar circumstances, you know, able to get um, a high school education, yes. right? Go beyond that just because he was a boy. And then now you being, you know, you coming to the U.S. and being able to be the first person in your uh, family to yeah. go to college, right? So living proof of the American dream is a, is a, it's a nice, nice, um, nice headline and nice, I mean, headlines of simplification, but it's something that I think is a really special embodiment of, of what, what you've done. But everybody can have their own American dream. You don't have to be an immigrant or, you know, coming to this country. Um, I just think a lot of it is I always, you know, what I wish for my kids and I think about is that they will have a better life than I will, more opportunities, you know, more um, things that they can do as part of this. And I think if every generation thought about kind of where they are, right, and if you're the first one to go to college, then literally how do you open the door for other people to go to college in your family? Or, you know, if you're the first entrepreneur, how do you have that, you know, that company last for years and years? And this is what I'm always kind of thinking through is like, how does every generation get better? It's not about having more money or having more successes. It's being better. Mm -hmm. being better so i think the question is really for us to really think about is like why do we define the american dream as coming to as an immigrant or refugee coming to the u.s like everybody can have hmm. a better life and create a better environment for their families mm -hmm. and friends co-workers all of it i love that i think that's a great extension of it because you're totally right i think that most of the time, we picture the American dream as coming from unfortunate circumstances to then making it in the U.S. Um, or elsewhere. We can just call it the dream at this point, the you dream. know. Um, but I think that at the crux, at the end of the day, it's just about betterment, right? Yes. It doesn't have to be in such extreme circumstances. Yeah. And I think that's a great message, especially coming from from you, right? Who is um, sort of an archetypal example of, of the American dream. Mm -hmm. Um, so I wanted to sort of backtrack a little bit here and jump back to, you just graduated Virginia Tech, right, in marketing and operations, mm -hmm. and you were a programming consultant for Clarkston, right, actually programming main, mainframes, so you did know how to fix computers at one point. 
kind of mainframes, you know, old school. Yeah, old school. Um, but I was, I actually learned COBOL in uh, college. And SAP was very hot at that time in 96. Mm -hmm. And literally the goal was to take people that had any programming background, mainframe, you know, um, COBOL, Fortran, doesn't matter. And literally get them to learn the ABAP language, which was the SAP language for um, coding and programming SAP to do certain things, whether it be importing interfaces or communicating between their modules. It's a very complicated um, architecture and background. Mm -hmm. Watch out, Appian engineers. <laughs> Denise might be coming for your job sometime soon. Uh-oh. Well, I'm actually the perfect profile because I have an outdated skill called COBOL. Yeah, that's and true. Well, it's funny. You know, it's like our, and we're going to get a little bit meta here when it comes to Appian. But, uh, you know, what are the, what are the, part of the value our, our platform provides is in, you know, connecting to legacy systems like mainframes to bring that data into processes and then I can give you the whole value proposition, but not the point. The point being, in a way, when you think about it, and don't get mad at me for saying this, but you were kind of part of creating the problem that we ultimately are solving. Or That's so maybe correct. it's actually a good thing because it's like you you ultimately indirectly created the role as CMO at Appian for yourself. Yes, I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's like what would they would say, right? Modernizing, we're now modernizing yeah. everything that happened in the you know mid-90s. Yeah, so this was all part of your grand plan. But, so you were a programming consultant for about five years and then you jumped out to Silicon Valley and you had, you had an itch that you needed to scratch to move out there and, and live the Silicon Valley sort of uh, life in, in tech. So I guess the first question I'd have on that front is making that kind of leap. You know, that's got to be a big one in a way to leave, leave home or leave the sort of side of the U.S. that you yeah. knew and move out to the other side. How did you just have that conviction to do it? So I will tell you uh, one piece of advice for the early talent and listeners. Stay networked. Network in Network. your career and life. And by the way, I've only applied for two jobs in my life. One is out of school, and the second one is at Appian. And by the way, didn't really even apply. I was looking for board jobs. That's another story we'll get to later. Yeah. Um, but I actually had a friend that went to work at Top Tier, and they were looking for somebody with my background. Yeah, right? Top Tier uh, being the startup that yeah, you joined. Being yeah, being the startup. It's literally doing product marketing work, um, and they needed somebody that had both CRM background and ERP background. And I actually spent during that five years, like about a year, also coding on the Pivotal platform for a CRM package yeah. that was back then. I wish I knew these things, but I don't. <laughs> yeah. So that literally to build the content roadmap and to set the roadmap, they needed somebody with both profiles. Mm. And it was more of a friend called me and said, you should come with me in California. And I was like, okay. And that was it. That was and it. And then you went for it. I literally, I didn't even apply for the job. My resume was passed. I flew in, met the folks. And then next thing you know, so went to California. I love that. I love that it's it's like just a spur of the moment decision in a way. I'm sure you gave it more thought than, than that. But the point being, like, I think that a lot of people struggle with, with the paradox of choice, like decision yeah. overload and trying to analyze a whole field of opportunities that they think might be the best fit. When in reality, the best the best fit is often just to to make a decision, yeah. right? Is to seize opportunities when they come to you, to not let them go, and and so I, I love that you just 
you went for it, you know? Yeah, it was Came such, your way and you went for it. Well, first of all, it was California. It was great weather. It would be tons of hiking. And it was just an opportunity to do something different. I'd spent five years traveling and working at client sites, and that could be really draining as mm-hmm. part of it. So I just thought this was a great opportunity, and I'm glad you know, ended up going. Yeah. And then shortly we got acquired by well, SAP. I was going to say, how long, how long did, did you last the company before it got acquired? It was about six months. It six months. Very Talk long. about lucky. Yeah. And that was like around 2001. So yeah. was it pre-dot-com? It was acquired? Uh, it was it was still the dot com era. And by the way, I came there um in two thousand and then there was a quiet period as they were doing the announcement and my first interaction at SAP was to go to their Sapphire event, which was in Portugal. So I went to Lisbon, Portugal. Nice. And it was wow. uh, an acquisition announcement at that time and it was very exciting. Yeah. So the serendipity there, I mean, a great example. Of course, there's some luck involved always, but seize opportunities when they come your way because, you know, what's the saying? It's, I can't remember it, but it's, it's something about just, you know, the best the best thing to do is just to decide to go rather than to yeah. uh, rather than to let things pass by in order to optimize better. A, a better version of Noah would have had that quote, just like ready to go. <laughs> but anyway, the talk about the serendipity, you... You move out to you move out to Silicon Valley. You join a startup. It gets acquired by SAP. You join SAP. You move up and and you you have an amazing experience. You move up in the ranks there. You become a COO towards the end of your 15 year time there. One of the things that I love that you talk about is sponsorship versus mentorship, yes. right? And the and you having had both in your time at SAP and how they important they both were. Yeah. By the way, it's not just at SAP. I've had mentorship and sponsorship my entire life, Mm. my entire life. So I I really value, right? And mentors are people that will give you guidance and help you in certain decision making. But sponsors are people that actually speak on your behalf and recommend you for roles. Mm -hmm. And I just remember there were so many amazing sponsors, right? Um, at SAP, you know, Mark White, who was a CFO for the global uh, customer area, was one of my first sponsors there. Then, of course, Shaquille Boudry, who was running, you know, the um, chief strategy officer role. Uh, Simon Paris, who was later the president in um, the industry cloud area. And in between that, like Alex Hatzberger, who I reported to when I was running, you know, competitive market intelligence. There's just so many people. And I just think without all the sponsorship in combination with a few times, I'm pretty sure the mentors were like, why are we having this conversation again? (laughs) Um, Really helped in between. And even today, I use mentors and sponsors, you know, outside of work as well to help me sometimes make tough decisions. Mm -hmm. How how does one go about developing a, a mentorship or a sponsorship type relationship you know is it is it is it something like do you need to, is that something you need to formalize and especially on the sponsorship front you know to get someone to, to be doing things on your behalf requires a, a pretty deep and strong relationship yeah right i think you need to think about the um, intersection that you have on your execution with that mentor or sponsor right 
a lot of times you'll get assigned, you know, a lot of companies will have a mentoring program, but you get assigned somebody and they've never seen you in action. And it makes it harder to mentor you for certain decisions. And same thing with sponsorship, right? Some companies will have these programs. And I think the, the best opportunity is when you have the intersection where the person sees you execute and then gives you that, you know, especially in the sponsorship. So, you know, I come back to um, somebody like, uh, you know, our chief strategy officer at SAP who gave, who saw me execute in the turnaround with the competitive market intelligence team and then open other doors for other opportunities as part of it. And mm-hmm. if you get that opportunity, you really need to think about asking, right? So you execute, the person notices, then you go ask, look, I would love sponsorship for you know, X, Y, Z role. Here's why I think I, you know, um, should get it. And then spend the time to get to know them. And then if you think about sponsorship, it's like any friendship or relationship you have. What is the give and get? Mm -hmm. Like think about like what you can also give them as part of it. It's not just you getting. Mm -hmm. And I think that leads to a long time, you know, um, set of folks that will continue to sponsor you and help you through your career. Mm -hmm. 100% provide value to get value. And I also love that you say ask. I think not a lot of people are willing to ask, you know, people are like, and it's understandable, you know, it's a little bit uncomfortable. You can be a little shy. It's just kind of how people are like asking you shall receive in this world. You know, you'd be, people would be so surprised how like often people are willing to help. Yeah. Right. But as I mentioned, don't ask randomly. Don't be like, Hey, will you be my mentor? And you've never (laughs) talked to the person. Yeah, Yeah. You're standing in the corner, never met them, had no interaction. Right. And you, Give that opportunity for that intersection of executing well Mm -hmm. and then getting on that person's radar as part of it. Mm -hmm. I just remember we had a board member in my previous life where, you know, I really wanted to learn the ins and outs of what it would take to sit on board. So I had coffee with her and then she was very generous. She opened the door to getting advisory roles, which was great. And then I noticed like her digital presence was a little bit outdated. So I came with an entire plan and I was like, here are some folks that could help you update your website. Here's somebody I know from social that could help you activate your social and help her build out that digital piece of, you know, um, that brand for her as part of sitting on boards. And it was just very mutually yeah. beneficial. As and then she's like, Denise, please let me be your mentor, please. I'm begging you. <laughs> you know? And I, just, I learned so much. It's, I think that we just think of it as one direction. And I look at it as whether it's a mentor or a sponsor, treat it as if you're cultivating a friendship, relationship. Mm-hmm. It needs to go in both directions. Totally. Jordan and Matt, how are we doing? What, what time is it? This this, is a, this watch doesn't have the right time. It's just for show. <laughs> Sorry, 204. Because you know, we can talk forever. If anybody's asking me questions, have, I can answer yeah. forever. Do you guys have seven more hours? <laughs> um, I'm kidding. Um, so sponsorship, mentorship, contributed a lot to your experience and your ability to succeed at SAP. We talked about gratefulness before. Now, one one thing that I could see becoming, you know, a, a thought as you continue to be successful at SAP is humility, right? And how that ties in with gratefulness, right? Because when you're successful, 
you know, it's the human condition, you start to develop an ego, not you in particular, but in general, this is how people operate, right? And ultimately ego is the enemy. It's a huge obstacle we all face. Yes. But in the face of success, it's something that's very difficult to curb often. And especially when you're in an environment with other successful people, because not only do you want to appear successful or, or not only do you want to feel successful, but you want to appear successful, right? You want other people, because that's sort of conducive to success as well is, is being confident and, yeah. and in a way like showing, you know, just showing ability, right? So how did, how, how does humility, how does ego, how did that play a role in your, in your time at SAP and in your career altogether? I think you definitely need to have enough ego to have the drive, mm -hmm. right? Because that ego will fuel your drive as part of it. But you have to stay humble because again, you know, I come back to that saying, you can be a hero one day and down to zero the next. There's so much ebb and flow when you work in large organizations. And sometimes it could be so simple as a political or organizational change. And with or that organizational change, that could completely change your career as part of it. And I think that if you work to stay humble, build a network, you will always be surrounded by friends, family, and everyone that supports you as part of it. Mm -hmm. I've had lots of failures to you know, um, think through and many things that I've experimented on that didn't always work. And in the moments uh, when things don't always go my way, I'm just, I'm always like, stay humble. Mm -hmm. Like it gets you up for the next day of the, you know, next fight as part of it. Yeah. It's tough though, right? It's, you know, stay, like having humility is a very important thing. And I think ultimately, like, especially connecting to kindness, like, you know, humility and kindness are in a way like symbiotic right yeah but yeah you know because ultimately if we don't keep our egos in check we're going to trend into that direction yes right so it's like you you almost want to encourage yourself to have an ego to be confident and have that drive and passion but you also want to you don't want to submit to it you don't want to let yes. it control you right okay. the mind is a fantastic um it's a fantastic asset but not a fantastic master yeah Right. And then I always tell people, too, is, you know, they're saying, you know, what do all leaders have in common? They have followers. Mm. And so for anyone that, Can't has, be a follower. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that has had a meaningful career where you've zigzagged, whether it's in different roles, different companies, if you look at the folks that report to you, if you don't have anyone in your organization who has followed you, that is a big message itself. Red flag. Red flag. <laughs> Red flag. So anywhere you go, if you um, work to build teams and to innovate and to have that humility, people will follow. Mm -hmm. People will come with you. Yes. And I've heard about that in, in, in many cases, right? As we spoke about that earlier is, is so some people will say, don't necessarily follow companies, follow leaders, right? Yes. Follow people because the people are ultimately gonna define the experience. It's better to do unpleasant work for a good manager than fun work for a bad manager, Agreed. right? So Agreed. the the industry, the company, the product isn't necessarily as important in many cases as the manager, the person you're working yeah, for. Absolutely, if you just think about something so simple, in this past year, has your manager sat down to ask you, what do you want to do? What do you want to be when you grow up? Have they have they put together a development plan for you as part of it? Have you put one together with the manager, right? Because I always ask this, which is like, what do you want to be when you grow up and how can I help? Mm -hmm. How can yeah. I help? You asked that in our first conversation. Yeah. And 
yeah, not to go off on a tangent, but that was a great that was a great conversation. Also, because this is an Appy and affiliated podcast, I'm gonna give a shout out to my manager, Josh Offertig. Out there Josh in the world. is a great guy. Josh is a great guy. <laughs> Love him to death. He has absolutely done all those things with me. Um, so Josh, I will follow you into the darkness. That's because he's a New Yorker. <laughs> you know that. Yes, I, I guess so, right? I mean, aren't are, are New Yorkers typically such nice guys? Is that how is that how it works? All I know is I met Josh. We had a chance to meet during the interview process, and he was giving me a demo. And I was asking him 101 questions. He wasn't flustered at all. I just <laughs> yeah. knew from the first time I was meeting him, I was like, he's very patient. And I could tell he was a very kind soul. Yes, absolutely. I can confirm that. So that's just, that's just you know, the typical app you employ, right? Just kind souls all the way around. Um, so Appian, we talked a little bit about why Appian, why you joined the company, right? This is a, a great size for you um, yes. in terms of the company and this, and scaling up. Yeah. So marketing at Appian has always been um, uh, a bit of a challenge, right? Um, we have an interesting history as a company that our customers love, our customers do love. We The one metric um, that is uh, representative of that is 119% net revenue reta- yeah. retention, right? It's basically 119% of the time our customers come back to us, which is yeah. more than 100%. So, you know, that's uh, definitely a good sign. But nonetheless, we have a bit of a history as flying a, a little bit of an under the radar, you know, yeah. being more of a word of mouth company rather than a company that is, you know, very, is a household name in a way, like a yes. lot of our competitors. So w- why do you think that's been? What do you what do you think has been the reason for that? I think the company has always been more product oriented, mm-hmm. right? And I think what we have the great opportunity um, to really do in marketing is to elevate the messaging and positioning, and of course increase the market presence and brand. So when I look at something that is close to my heart, like low code for all and democratizing access, you know, to development and giving out scholarships to bring you know, more diversity into um, tech. I look at this being fueled by Appian as a great way to take a CSR initiative, get it out into the market and get the brand recognition mm-hmm. as part of that. So when you think about something like Low Code for All, those are great campaigns. And for us, it's a great way to really shift the way that we are marketing, because instead of just marketing the product, we need to humanize the brand as mm-hmm. part of that, right? And I, again, I just think that, you know, after SAP, because I had an opportunity to spend time in the private equity side, that was a four-year turnaround. And by the way, by the fourth year, we sold it to another private equity. And when you're in private equity, you don't have as much money around marketing. You don't have as much opportunity to hire, you know, and grow as part of this, right? Because it's pretty controlled on the private equity side. Um, So all of those learnings really help to come here and think about like, how do we scale up the company as part of that and just change the market presence? It's really impressive. And just this year, like at Appian, featured in CNBC, you know, um, Yahoo, Chatter. I mean, there's so many outlets, Forbes, a couple times already. And I just think that will continue as part of the investments and to have that employee advocacy. If you look at the aha moments that we have launched and talking about what was the empowerment moment for an employee 
We're doing the same thing now with partners. And of course, we're going to launch that at the end of the year with customers. So everything we do is around humanizing our brand. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when Portals was launched, right? Yeah, um, Appian Portals. Appian That's Portals. Now part of our uh, offerings, all of my loyal listeners of who may or may not love LoCode. Exactly. <laughs> you know, what I really loved is the development team came out with a Wordle sample. You remember? Yeah, yeah. They were playing Portal. Wordle on Portals. Portal? portal right and then when i was telling i remember telling my showing it to my 11 year old who's into wordle she's like oh now i understand what appian does and i said no no, no we don't create you know <laughs> b2c or consumer apps we create like enterprise apps but at least that kind of opened the door for her to think about what appian can do mm -hmm. versus just describing it as oh we let you drag and drop you know, and build, and we build code in the background and help to, uh, expedite that, right, yeah. as part of it. So really humanizing that brand is our big mission. Yeah, and that's why low code for all, hashtag low code for all, for anyone who wants to put it on a social media platform. Um, I, really, I really like that, right? Because exactly as you're saying, it's about inclusivity. It's yes. about bringing people into the development world. Yeah. And that's, at the end of the day, what low code tries to do, right? Not just necessarily Appian, but all types of low code platforms okay. is be is understand that the technolo technological revolution has already come. Yeah. We are there's a demand for talent, but not enough supply. Mm -hmm. And so we need to create an avenue to ensure that people can become more enabled to to build yes. right, and develop um, like software applications yeah. of all kinds. So love that. And I love that we're trying to change it from the brand awareness side of things. What about, so low code has become a term that many companies have taken on as part of their marketing, mm -hmm. right? The low code market has become quite saturated. It's quite crowded now. Yeah. And that can be difficult for a company like Appian, right? Who's, for all companies who are trying to fight yeah. within it. So what are your thoughts on, on Appian's you know, strategy for, for managing that? Yeah, I think for us, it's being very focused on our customers and our use cases, right? Whether we're modernizing legacy, whether we're modernizing ERP, whether we become the filler between, let's say, some of these big applications like a Workday versus an SAP Oracle. Mm -hmm. And I think that through the use cases, you really understand the power of Appian because we're not coming in to build Wordle apps, right? We're really thinking about how do we help to improve, you know, employee processes for a Pfizer or, you know, let's say uh, Santander at the banking. I mean, it's some complex, highly complicated things that we do as part of just creating that return on investment for many of our customers. Um, so I think that as we continue to innovate, and if you look at something so simple as like, not simple, complicated, like low-code data, mm -hmm. right? So every simple, simple to build, but complex to, you know, complex use cases. Exactly. Yeah. And by the way, low-code data, we have a patent for and the reason why we award that patent is no one really we'll does it, right? Let's go. No, no one really does it. <laughs> yeah. And as part of this, we let customers keep their data where they want or to move it, and then we can leverage that data as part of this. Again, all stuff that we don't really talk about, right? But we need to get you know more use cases and why our platform creates power for our customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that 
ultimately, I mean, what is my job at the end of the day as a solutions consultant here? It's to take what you guys do in marketing, right, and ground it in something that is in the reality of, of the customer the, or the yeah. customer's world, right? And that's that's an interesting intersection, right? The intersection between sales and marketing and the cross functionality right. and how and the, how that's designed. At every company is different. I heard a great account executive at Appian named Rue Dickinson say the following: Sales is marketing, or sorry, marketing is sales without context, right? It's a broad messaging yeah. to cap, cast as wide a net as possible, and sales is marketing with context, right? It is. Um, it is essentially targeting your message yes. at the at the at who the audience is, yeah. and so there's got to be a relationship between sales and marketing, or an open line of communication. Absolutely. It's extremely important at any company. Yeah. So how how are you strategizing around that? Look, I think that marketing cannot coexist without sales and vice versa. That's why we call it go to market. We do mm. everything together as part of it, and I think, you know, your example is absolutely correct. We run certain place for let's say broad brand awareness so for example when we run the commercials on npr it's broad brand awareness but when thinking about a customer's journey where there is a specific persona or specific industry it has to be focused towards that customer or prospect mm -hmm. as part of it gotcha yeah it's it's interesting seeing how how our teams work together it's yeah. fun though you know it it's is. like even bigger family you know even bigger, bigger family. family um now one thing that's been um, another way in which people or leaders have had to, you know, think about their leadership and, and how they're approaching work has been the hybrid work environment. Mm -hmm. and I know that's something you think a lot about. And even though, you know, you don't live in D.C., you're still here with us today. Yeah. Right. And it's not just for the podcast, although I would love to think that it, it is just for the podcast. But so how do you think about hybrid work and, and what are your what are your tips for leaders who want to engage and connect with their teams? Yeah. My number one advice is to be intentional. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think it's important that, um, you know, we we set up for a hybrid environment. Uh, literally, as you mentioned, I come to headquarters probably every three to four weeks. When I'm here, I'm very intentional in how I engage with the teams. We have everything from happy hours to fun events. Last week, one of the teams took me bowling um, as part <laughs> of this. And uh, how did you do? Was it good? It was, it was terrible. It was pretty bad. Okay. I mean, I had a 30-point handicap, and I barely won. Um, <laughs> There's no video footage because you forced everyone to delete it. They, thank goodness <laughs> there was no video coverage as yeah. part of it. Um, it's probably comparable to my dancing. But anyways, um, I think that for us, it's really important to be intentional, right? Organize the activities that bring the teams together. Um, make sure that when we do the setups, whether it's something so simple as all hands, is there an opportunity for everybody to sit together um, that is in the office versus, you know, folks that are remote. You know, last week uh, at the company meeting, we did a lot of fun things like we had, you know, an author, Ryan Jenkins, come talk about loneliness as part of one of the guest speakers. We also had a panel session. Um, and I think mixing it and making sure that our teams are you know, coming at, into the office when there's activities, as well as the flexibility to work from home, right? So mm -hmm. if I'm not here, 
you remember I have all the books behind me as well, right? Yes. I'm in my home office. Just stacking this yeah. and she looks very smart. Uh, <laughs> calls. Like I just think that's so important is that we're intentional when we're remote, hybrid, as well as in person, and it's always the mix of all of these things that will create trust and safety in the mm -hmm. workplace. What do you What do you think about the companies that are adopting a, either a completely remote working style? like Airbnb just announced in the last couple of weeks um, or companies that are forcing their their employees to come into the office, which Apple was one of, yeah. although they not every day, but there are some companies that are saying every day. So maybe let's let's start on the front of um, of completely remote. What do we think about that? I think if you are doing 100% remote, you still need to program activities for people remotely. And you should give managers the flexibility to come once a quarter with their teams together and work on things or be at an offsite. I think it's tough to be 100% remote and never see each other. Mm -hmm. I don't think that is conducive to creating a trust environment. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and the return to the office like that flexibility is going to be hard to take away after the pandemic. That's why I think hybrid is just such a better in-between, right? Yeah. In the hybrid environment, you get flexibility and you create intentional yeah. um, programs and activities for people. Yeah, I, I agree. I think those are the, that's an important strategy, right? To ensure that there's some form of in-person work. If you're at a company that is trying to build yeah. community and community is all like a great way to connect people to the mission, ultimately get them to perform better and be more productive. You know, for, as my story goes, I started remotely at Appian. Me too. Yeah, there you go. And well, the pandemic. Yes, like right is, it was fun, right? You know, <laughs> behind a computer screen all day. Um, I started remotely, I'm from Toronto, and I stuck around there for about a year until things started calming down a little bit and then return to office started happening, but it was optional, right? Yeah. But ultimately, I got great advice, which was to go because creating in-person connections is irreplaceable. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I, I wouldn't be here with you right now if that weren't if that didn't happen, yes. right? So, I think that ultimately being in person. This is me sort of projecting my opinion a little bit, but me being in per, I think that being in person is going to give people who are working at hybrid companies a little bit more of an edge, yes. right, to develop relationships. Um, but you know, it's it's at the end of the day, it's not for everyone, and it's uh, it's an interesting world now where we, where we live in, where where people have that choice. Yeah. But yeah. I think you mentioned something so important, which is we have to we need the connections and the when you're on a Zoom or Google, it's so transactional, mm -hmm. right? You don't when you meet in person, have a chance to eat a dinner together, or have a drink together, like. I can ask you about, you know, hey, what is your what's your workout routine, right? Because yeah, we're both yeah. into intermittent fasting, and I can talk about yeah. stuff that we may not talk about in front of like a group of five to ten other people on a Google. The other piece is when you need to either give somebody maybe not positive feedback or challenge certain things, you know, the psycho the psychological safety of having that trust that you probably will only establish whether you're working on deliverables together, have a chance to interact together, have a connection, mm -hmm. may not come as part of it. Because if you're purely remote, you may not feel that safety yeah. to ask certain questions. Yeah, I, I, I'm i in agreement. I'm, I'm just reflecting on my experience here. And you know my 
my ability to develop relationships with leadership and how there's probably many conversations that were much more candid than they would have been otherwise. Um, So I can, I mean, I think we can both definitely speak to our experiences on, on the, on the intentionality being important on the hybrid front. Now you are a CMO. You, you mentioned, you know, the good habits, which I'm excited to get into in a little bit that you are, that are important to you in the discipline and you are a mother, right? Yes. How the heck do you balance all that? How do you do it? What's the secret trick? Wonderful husband. Wonderful, Wonderful husband. husband you know, and what's his name? Uh, Safi. Safi. So Shout I really Safi. maybe it's you know <laughs> like the probably the combination of the two of us. I'm pretty sure our kids probably think like we're overly PMA people, which I call it's positive mental attitude. My husband grew up in a kibbutz. Mm. on a communal farm in Israel. And then, you know, he, like, not materialistic at all. He used to tell me, like, they got issued, like, a pair, two pairs of jeans a year and a pair of Crocs and maybe a couple of T-shirts. He's complete minimalist. I, on the other hand, wow. grew up as a refugee kid. So when we merged and moved in together, literally, he had, like, two boxes and his toolkit that he's had all his life. He's taken it all around the world. I came within, like, 25 boxes, I think. And I think that was like the <laughs> fact that I was overcompensating for not having anything, right? So yeah. we're, we're very different, but at the same time, very similar. And I always thank him for all his support, you know, between many of the global jobs and some of the turnaround jobs have been very intensive and has been time consuming and lots of hours. Mm -hmm. And I would really say without him and all the support and, you know, he's also in the startup world. So it's not like he has this simple job, right? Of, um, oh, nine to five. So really working around, you know, the girls' calendars and my calendar. Yeah, do you guys have a shared calendar? Oh my goodness, there was this crazy system. That's so funny. When the girls were younger, it was color-coded. And it yeah. was everything between his travel, my travel, the when the nanny came, the housekeeper, like, we just, you know, and of course you can't do this with all of the, without the infrastructure and support. And yeah. I'm really grateful now that my parents are retired because of the pandemic. So mm-hmm. now if we both need to travel, which doesn't happen that often, they're on call, they come to New York and spend, you know, week, two weeks with the kids, which makes it easy but you know the kids They're are older call. now the kids are older <laughs> yeah and i just this is something that i tell my kids there's don't strive to be perfect like do the best that you can mm-hmm. give it your best and that's all that can be expected right i'm confident i wasn't always like the best mom or you know the best leader but i always tried my best yeah i always gave it my best shot as part of that and i hope that you know people saw that and appreciated um and i just think that is the the way to have it all but maybe not all at once right mm-hmm. we talk about this which is you know there was um one of my mentors when i was in my 20s she told me she's like you have three things in life you have your career You'll have your family and you'll have health. You'll never have all three all at once. Mm-hmm. So you have to be okay to only have two out of the three. And it ebb and flows. Yeah. And so sometimes like the family life's going great, but the career is not going great, but the health is going great because there's plenty of time to work out and do other stuff. So I think like you have to just have to be okay that we cannot strive for perfection. And it's that strive constantly to keep up with the Jones or strive for perfection. I think that creates 
you know, all this like mental health issues and not necessarily like letting you be your best. Yeah. I think, I think perfection is, I think the great saying that I think about when you, when you're talking about this, like perfect is the enemy of the good. Yeah. Right. Ultimately, if you, it's Pareto's principle, right? You can get, you can, it's 80, 20, you can get to a point in which you are performing at a level that is at a sufficient threshold to achieve results, right? But it's not perfect, but it's sufficient. And sufficiency is often enough, right? In many cases, sufficiency, if you're sufficient and consistent, you can be the most successful person in the world, right? So I think there's an important balance there. I love that you say it's the partnership of you and your husband. It's interesting that you guys are are different but similar, but still quite different, right? (laughs) Startups, scale-ups, toolbox, 25 boxes, (laughs) you know? Do you think, do you think like, you know, the opposites working together, is that, is that sort of a, like sort of a, a way in which you've interpreted that situation when people have like complementary attribute skill sets, or do you think that people fit better together when they're like very similar? I think it's all situational, right? I think that you have to have some fundamental core beliefs, right? Um, So because we both grew up in a very communal environment, we're very communal. Before the pandemic, we would even have anyone that worked for me that lived in New York, for example, that didn't have plans for Thanksgiving. We always had a potluck party at our house during Thanksgiving. So all of the people that came from abroad families could have a family to go to as part of that. So for us, these things are really important. And I think that you have to have some of the fundamental core beliefs, but you can be a different in the way that you do things. Like my husband's gifted with coordination. He runs marathons and Abbey Runner. I'm like, I'm trying to keep my feet on the ground. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Well, you're, you're a weightlifter, right? So does three you got pounds that on count? Him. Does yeah, three, three pounds, pounds does count? count. Three, it does. Three pounds counts. Yeah, right. The the value alignment is is yes. key, right? And then you know the orbital the orbital characteristics or interests yeah. um, don't necessarily have to be you know perfectly symbiotic. But I mean, at the end of the day, I'm sure you guys have appreciation for each other's for each other's you know quirks and idiosyncrasies, of right? Of course. Yeah. It's been 15 years, and it's going to be another you know 15, 20, 40, whatever, 50 years. Yes. <laughs> and and in in those 15 years. How many, this is my cheesy segue, how many hours of, of walks have you guys been on together? A lot. We yeah. walk after dinner every night. You walk after dinner yeah, every night. Yeah, when I'm in town. We always, we love to walk and we hike a lot as a yeah. family, so. Amazing. Because I, I asked that because walks are, and here's the segue, walks are something that you have, you know, seen a lot of value in, right? Even in the professional world. Yes. And I, I specifically love that a lot because I'm a, I'm a big fan of Steve Jobs as an entrepreneur he loved to go on like like hours long walks with you know famously people like Larry Ellison or or other you know executives or people who are on his teams or even a significant others right so yeah. so what what is you know walking this this relationship that you have across the world spiritually to Steve Jobs here what like what is walking what, why has it been so valuable for you in your career for me walking is like meditation mm-hmm. and anyone that has worked with me for a while or has traveled with me knows like there's um and my last role was very funny i we, we landed into barcelona i was with another colleague and i'm like let's go put our bags away go to sleep for a couple hours i'll meet you for lunch 
Then we ended up walking in Barcelona in the park, right, which is beautiful because Gaudi's stuff. I mean, it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. And then I couldn't remember. I was like, I think the hotel is only 20 minutes away, so let's walk back. We walked for four hours. Oh my goodness! <laughs> this particular colleague was like, uh, if I didn't know you, I would be really mad yeah. at you. But he's very used to me dragging him around, and people always ask me like. When I travel, how do I get through the jet lag? I walk. I literally, if I cannot sleep at two o'clock in the morning, I go down to the gym. I walk on the treadmill, and then I'll be tired. I'll go back to sleep. You walk four. on the treadmill. Yeah, really. Love it. What interesting. And when you walk, do you have headphones in? Do you like to just be, you know, silence? It depends. Yeah. Usually, I'm listening to a book if I can't read it. I'm listening to the news, um, but sometimes, like, I walk just for. With aimlessly, like when I travel to some of the other uh, places, I may just walk and then I bring my iPhone and figure out where I am, and I'll take an Uber back because sometimes <laughs> I like lose track of where I am. You're killing me. So that happens as That's well. Great. So I just think there's so much. You know, it's it's good to you know move your body, but between the fresh air and just sometimes without the pressure of time. Gives you the chance to really think through how you're gonna work on do things, right? Mm-hmm. I have built many、um, board decks and just presentations from walking and thinking about my storyboard.、Wow. That's pretty cool. So usually then <laughs> I'm not listening. To do that. No, then I'm not listening today because I'm really focused. I'm like, I、yeah. got thirty minutes. I got to think about what I'm gonna put together for、so、the you storyboard. Like, you like focus, like、I、when focus. you're on the walk, you're like thinking、yeah. about it. Yeah. And if I have my phone, I will. I will literally talk into my、yeah. phone and voice record like the storyboard if it's a good one to think about. What about? Have you ever like been on a walk and you're trying to like think through something? And do you ever just like talk to yourself on the walk? Oh, completely. Yeah, that's nice. I do the same thing. People think I'm freaking nuts. Completely. <laughs> I put headphones in though, so people think I'm talking to someone else and not talking to myself. Yeah, I'll share something fun. I go every Jordan, year. Jordan and Matt are like, "What the heck's going on?" <laughs>、yeah. Every year for my birthday in February, I go for a meditation walk,、okay. and I'm usually walking two to three hours. I usually take the day off. By the way, I go for a meditation walk. I think about nothing. Think about like what I'm grateful for, what I want to accomplish in the next year, what I've accomplished. It's like my mind is just racing.、Yeah. And so this year, I literally I came back and I wrote the hashtag Low Code for All. And、no、then,、way. and then we assembled a team in the background, like within two hours, and we pulled a team together, right,、um, to really program management. Think about we just talked about it. I said, what would it take to create a CSR initiative where we could democratize What, access? CSR, what's uh, uh,、um, corporate social responsibilities?、Gotcha. And. Literally think about how we would give away access and scholarships for certification. Yeah, and it took pulling, you know, marketing together, training together, sponsorship with, you know, Pavel Zumando, who's my counterpart in CS,、um, and also the community team. And then we came together, worked on it for like three weeks with all the teams, and then we got in front of our CEO and presented it. Yeah. A month before it went live at Appian World. Oh my goodness! So、a、sometimes, before, like, quick. yeah, sometimes these these walks have like an outcome, and you're like, oh my gosh, can't believe that、yeah. that got all pulled together. But I think it's so meditative, even if you're listening to the book, because it's just. It's my breath, and 
my steps. And then sometimes just the idea of being alone. I mean, there could be 15 other people walking with me, but I don't see them. I don't even hear them. I'm like completely tuned <laughs> out. As soon as the legs start moving, it's tuning out. <laughs> I, I think that's that's interesting though. I think like the the difference in the way I think about walks versus you do is, and this is a bit of a like generalization, but I think that like the focus that you employ while you're walking, like when you go on a walk, you're, you're, you decide to focus. Yeah. Or maybe at this point it's become second nature to you. I think when I go on a walk, and I think maybe I'm speaking for most people, we just kind of go on a walk, you know, and we just kind of let our minds run free. And perhaps yes. like what happens there is ultimately you let like subconscious thoughts and anxieties get to you and, you know, it can kind of spiral out of control. But if you employ some focus to it, yes. it can be oh, highly beneficial. Yeah, sometimes I'll take my teammates also for walks, right? Uh, yeah. Around the pond here when I'm here. Um, if it's especially if we're not working on deliverables and let's say we're just catching up on a few topics, like it's good to get out and good for the mental health to get fresh air. Agreed. Especially working behind our screens all day. How are we doing on time, guys? 237. 237. Okay. Got a, got a couple more things I want to talk to you about. We're on, we're on the wellness section here, which yeah. is my favorite part. I saved the best for last, but I didn't want to be selfish and put it up front because this is what I like to talk about. Um, journaling. Right, yes. journaling. You're you love Moo notebooks, especially the ones that have the Appian logo on them. <laughs> but journaling, I I'm just gonna put that out there. Whoops, I'm gonna put that out there. Journaling, go. What do you think about it? Okay, first of all, <laughs> there's this preconception that journaling is like writing in your diary and it's girly. I don't think so. I think it can be so again meditative, right? Like I used to just have something so simple. Every day I would just write one thing I was grateful for. And then it started to be more of like, you know, certain things that I was working through as part of it. Or sometimes it would just be goals that I wanted to accomplish. And um, I think just the daily routine of just writing your thoughts and then the opportunity to go back to it. Sometimes in like a year or two years, whatever it is, there was this one journal that was, uh, there was this one entry that literally told me I needed to go do something else with my life, right? I remember there was a page where I was listing the number of days left before uh, some major event happened at work. And I was like, oh my God, the fact that I spent all this time writing the number of days, it's like, it's the wrong role for me. Oh my goodness, yeah. So sometimes it can help you kind of think through certain things, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, you can write your journals, whether it be in gratitude, whether it help you helps you to solve problems at work, whether it's, um, you know, to even process certain things that are going outside of work. Mm -hmm. I use it for all. Yeah. I think from the problem solving side, I can definitely relate to it, right? Like creating like order from chaos, yeah. you know, in, in our brains, our thoughts are just this like chaotic mess floating around without yeah. any like attachment to anything. You start journaling, you get to compartmentalize like what is emotion, what's logic yes. and how can I synthesize from the, from the perspective of documentation as well, right? Being able to look back at your journal, and see the snapshot of your mind during that time, right? Because oftentimes when you're in the moment, you don't have a lot of perspective, right? Like yeah. it's too hard to see with clarity, right? There's a reason hindsight is 2020 is a is a thing, right? I would say current sight is 1020. Is that 1420? I don't I don't know if that's how. Is that, that a 2020? Uh, hindsight is 2020. Oh, current sight is 
whatever measure, however that measurement is used to say that your ability to see clearly is lower, that's the number I'm going for. The point being that when you get to look back at your journal and see where your mind was at at the time, you then get to use what is what becomes the hindsight is 2020 yes. at your past self, yes. right? It's like consulting a friend almost, yeah. right? Who has that third party perspective. And that's a really magical thing because you have all the information at the end of the day, right? It's hard to seek advice out sometimes because not everyone knows yeah. the entire situation and it's hard to communicate it. But you can look back and you can say, dang, like that's where I was mentally at that time. And yeah. what are the lessons I can take from it? Plus I find it to be very therapeutic. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just, you know, you may not like, between the travels, I may not talk to people about personal things right during the day, and it just gives me a chance to write my thoughts. Yeah. Do you write analog with like pe pencil paper? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a type guy. No, I no. like to write everything. She's mad at me. I scribble everything. <laughs> I can't. Sometimes I can't even read my own handwriting. Oh no. Yeah. Do you? Are you, do you do cursive? No, just no? write. Just normal writing. No. Okay. Well, I'll see if I can write it. Read it after your deepest, darkest <laughs> journal pages. We'll take a look at them together. Sleep. Sleep is something you used to get none of, and now you get plenty of. Eight hours during the weekdays, 10 hours on weekends. But in the past, Jordan and, Jordan and Matt are like, how do you know all this? <laughs> You're a stalker, Noah. Um, um, in the past, you got like four to six hours, yeah. right? By the way, in my, 20s, yeah. in my 20s, I was so proud to sleep four to six hours. It was like bragging rights. And as I got older and I saw that I was so much more productive when yeah. I slept more. I really strive to sleep eight hours every night. There are some nights where, you know, I may be preoccupied and maybe, you know, five, six hours, whatever, but I really focus weekdays, eight hours of sleep. I'm usually in bed by nine, nine thirty. And then good. I'm up, single digits. Yeah, I'm up, you know, four or five. So Yeah. So I mean, in the past, early in your career, in your twenties, you you told me that you used to travel and even like when you were traveling to exotic, awesome places, you wouldn't really take any time to enjoy yourself. And in retrospect, you kind of wish you did a little bit or, you know, maybe should have a little bit more than you did in the past, right? And so that's a question I have, you know, is that something you, and regret's a strong word, but maybe for lack of a better word, is that something that you do regret? Yes. It is because, yes. early, but like at the end of the day, you could argue that you, could, you wouldn't be where you are now if you didn't work as hard earlier in your career. Do you think that's true? Yeah, but I, I do a better job now being more intentional about the integration. Like when I talked about, you know, going going in on a Sunday instead of a Monday to Barcelona and just having that time to recover and to go to sleep, right? But even now it's hard. Like I was joking, we're about to, I'm going with a group in, to Australia for work because we are, um, got a bunch of programming activities at the end of June. And I realized in the 15 times I've been to Australia, I have never seen wildlife. I've never, <laughs> I've never. Like, I can't believe you've been to Australia 15 times. Yeah. That's a lot of times. I, I've never, <laughs> I've never hugged, uh, you know, koala, never um, seen a kangaroo as part of it. And then I was like, okay, this time I'm coming in on Saturday and darn it, I'm going to see yeah. a kangaroo. But I didn't even think about it. Yeah. And I think that sometimes like, you know, the guilt of, you know, spending less time with the family or um, just like being so busy, you're just trying to pack everything in. And I think you have to be very conscious of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So 
the integrating that in is just so important. Maybe it's also because I've been at home with the family for over two years in the pandemic. Yeah. So it's less guilt. And I was like, I'm leaving on Thursday and I'm going to see a koala or a kangaroo. But I think that we all have to be very intentional about these things or you get burnout as part of this. Yeah. Right? And I found myself a couple of times in my career burning out and it was just like, OK, I need time off. And I, I know when I get to that burnout mode. Yeah. And what do you think that came from? Do you think that that stemmed from what we spoke about earlier about, you know, your your early life and, and wanting more and wanting to be able to give more? Yeah, yeah. that's probably it. Yeah. I got to cure that somehow. I will, you're getting eight to 10 hours now. That's pretty good. 10 yeah. hours of sleep. That's a good amount of sleep. I sleep a lot. My husband jokes about it's my superpower. <laughs> Sleeping is my superpower. That's a good superpower. Um, also, watch out koalas and kangaroos in Australia because Denise <laughs> is coming to give you hugs. Um, Final thing I final thing I want to talk about here is something near and dear to my heart, which is a weird thing to say is near and dear to my heart, but it is, which is intermittent fasting, yes. right? Something that you are a huge recommender of. You said it has changed your life and you know, your nutritional, uh, the, the thought you give to nutrition altogether is yes. something that's very important to you. So again, putting it out there, intermittent fasting. I don't want to, I don't want to direct the question at all because I could, but I'm not going to goes back to my comment, discipline equals freedom. And mm -hmm. for me, intermittent fasting is one of them, right? So I've been intermittent fasting for the last three years. I do a 16 hour cycle. It doesn't matter where I am in the world. Um, and I usually eat between 12 to about eight, but depending on the schedule, sometimes like if I know we have a team dinner, let's say not until eight o'clock, I will push my eating a little bit later. And this past year, since beginning of the year, I've gotten a little bit more disciplined and Sunday through Mondays, um, I don't eat for a 24 hour cycle. And I think like it's so restorative yeah. and, you know, being over 40, they recommend that uh, for women, you do the 16 hours because it gives your body a chance to recoup and just to be better. Um, so today's a Monday and I still haven't eaten uh -oh. today, so I'll wait till, <laughs> you know, we'll go to about five or six. Do you drink a lot of water though? I do drink a lot of water and I yeah. drink my coffee black, but you know, it took me Same. a year to give up that cream and sugar and that coffee oh, yeah? and the lattes. I don't drink the lattes until the afternoon, but I just think that anyone that is into health it's not for a weight loss. It's really to feel better and to be so clear. And I just love that. I don't even think about breakfast. I'm yes. so much more productive because I get a workout in the morning. I'm reading in the morning. I am not thinking about what I'm eating. I would love to get to down to eating only once a day. Like like the one meal a day The routine. one meal a day at dinner. Yeah. I'm most social at dinner. Um, and usually lunch. I also am eating at my yeah. desk, which you is also a terrible like, habit. You like your glass of wine at night too, right? I do. You're big on the glass of wine I at do. night. I, I agree. Like at the end of the day, it is it is a freedom thing because I think that we often let food or the thought of food sort of define our day to day. It's like when's the next meal after breakfast? When's the next meal? Right after lunch? When's the next meal? Yes. And when you free yourself of that, you're actually much more liberated to do yeah. the things that are ultimately more productive. So there's the health side of things then there's also sort of like the mental health yes. um side of things which i can totally relate to um one meal a day that's that's a big one though i don't i don't know i'm gonna try you're gonna try yeah i figured you know i've conquered the monday thing would it be harder to do this like just maybe during the weekday yes i think 
I don't know. Well, you know, I you're posting you're posting on Twitter. I want to see more of your Twitter <laughs> updates on how your one meal a day is going, so I can reply to them. It's yeah. I've only managed to do it Sunday through Monday. Yes, that's it. Twenty four uh, hours. <laughs> all right, audience members, uh, if you're still with us and don't think we're crazy, um, thank you for for listening to this episode with Denise. Really appreciate your time, Denise. This has been fantastic. I knew this would be an awesome conversation. Thanks you know for joining thank me. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. It's like you know, just hanging out and talking. And uh, thank you so much for having me. Of course. Thanks for joining. <laughs>